I was uh, sitting in my family room yesterday, and Aaron walked into the room and had a moment that many of you are familiar with, the moment when you walk into a room and you say out loud, why did I come in here? And I was like, uh, I'm sitting here, like, is that good enough, is that good enough reason? Uh, but you've experienced that, right? You walk out into the garage determined to get something, and then you get out there and you're like, why did I, what did I, why did I come here? Or, or you go all the way from upstairs to downstairs in the basement to look for something, and by the time you get there, somehow you can't remember anymore why you got there. Or maybe you, sometimes I walk into the kitchen, I'm standing there like, why did I come here? I actually, want, I have a strategy for those moments, though. When I walk into the kitchen and I forget why I'm there, I just make myself a sandwich, because I figure, like, <laughs> that's probably why I came, and if it's not why I came, this will make me feel better about forgetting why I came. So this morning, as you walk into church and you're sitting here, have you ever thought to yourself, why did I come here? Why am I here? You know, a few years ago, there was a research, some research done by Barna, and the results were not really surprising, but they were researching church attendance and the perception that people have of church, and they came with some major conclusions. First off, today people are less, less open to the idea of church than they used to be. Uh, church going is no longer mainstream. 30 years ago, it was pretty normative to go to church. It really isn't anymore. The fact that you're here this morning actually puts you in a very distinct, significant minority in this community. The vast majority of the town of Clay and the surrounding areas are not gathering in a church this weekend. And they also learned that there's really great skepticism on the part of outsiders, unbelievers, or the unchurched about the church itself, and specifically the church's contribution to society. And so there's been more recent studies that have been done that have said, it's not as bad as everybody thinks. We've surveyed the nation, and based on the research, 40% of Americans go to church on a regular basis. That seems pretty good. 40% are going to church on a regular basis. But the Hartford Institute of Religion and Research did a follow-up study and said the reason why it was 40% was because of this thing called the halo effect. And the halo effect is exactly what it sounds like. When someone is asked a question about themselves, they want to make themselves sound better than they are, like they're an angel. And so the halo effect actually causes people to self-report in really an exaggerated, sort of deceiving way. And when this second research project was done, they said it's actually half. 40% of people say they attend church regularly, but actually only 20% of people do. There's so many objections to being a part of a church today, and you've probably heard some of them. Some people just simply say, I'm too busy. I just can't make the time for it. I work Mondays through Saturdays. Sunday's my only day to relax, and I'm not going to take up a couple hours of my morning by going to a religious service. That is, and here's another objection, that is not helpful, that is not relevant in any way. That's a big objection to Christianity and to faith as a whole in this world today. It's not relevant anymore. It's outdated. Haven't we evolved beyond religion? Aren't we moving into new things and better things and more certain things? And other people say, well, the church is filled with hypocrites, and so I don't want to be a part of the church. And they have some of these objections, of course, are legitimate. There are some types of churches, and there are some churches that are no longer relevant, and that are outdated, and that aren't helpful, and, and that, that are inconsistent in their stance and in their views on things. But people as a whole have really, in our society, in our country today, rejected the church. This morning, we're going to begin a four-week series simply entitled, Be the Church. 
And in these next four weeks, we're going to look at what the New Testament writers have to say about what it means to be the church. And specifically this morning, we're going to talk about the idea of be the church that gathers. Be the church that gathers. Now, if we're going to talk about the church, I need to define a term for you. And for the purpose of this series, when I talk about the church, here's the definition. I, I've, I read this recently in an article by a man named Brad Watson, who's a leader in a movement called SOMA. And he defines the church this way. I love this. The church is the people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. Is that helpful and memorable? The church is the people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. Now, what's missing from that definition? There's no building. There's no programs. There's no organization. And here's, what I, here's the one thing I really want us to get out of this series is this thought about the church, that the church is not primarily a property or a facility The church is primarily an identity and an activity. Let me explain. So the church is not primarily a property, what we own here, or a facility, what we're sitting in this morning, but the church is primarily an identity that we are the people of God together in Christ. That's our identity as the church. But it's also an activity. When I say activity, I don't necessarily mean going to church and being involved in programs. I'm talking about that we are the people of God for the purposes of God, specifically the mission of God. So to be a part of the church means that it's changed your identity. You're now the part of the people of God in Christ. But it's also really changed your core activity. You no longer live for your personal mission. You now live for a greater mission God's mission. And this morning we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10 and we're going to see that as the church we're supposed to gather and there's some very good reasons for gathering. I want to just give you a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews because we're kind of jumping into it this morning. Hebrews is a a letter, we call it an epistle. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter written by an unknown author. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, and it was sent to Jewish believers in the first century. Most likely, it was written and sent before 70 AD, because in 70 AD, something very significant happens. The temple is destroyed in Jerusalem, and if that had happened, almost certainly the author of Hebrews would have referenced that in some way in this letter, because he speaks so much of the temple. So it's probably before 70 AD. So we're talking a letter that was written almost probably within 30 to 35 years of Jesus being on the earth. At times, Hebrews reads more like a sermon than a letter. That's one of the distinct uh, qualities of Hebrews. It's kind of a sermon. And the main theme of Hebrews, I love this, the main theme of the whole book of Hebrews is simply to show you that Christ is greater. That's the theme. Christ is greater. Christ is better. Christ is truer. Christ is surer than any angel, any priest, any old covenant institution. Because remember, this was written to Jewish believers who now are placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and having to leave behind certain elements of their Jewish traditions and faith. And then every reader is being invited by the book of Hebrews to persevere and to encourage others to do the same. So that's a little bit on Hebrews, but what's important for us this morning is that we're jumping into this letter at what commentaries call the most important turning point in the letter. So 
Verse 19 of Hebrews 10, which is where we're going to start, starts with the word therefore. And of course, you know this. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to look back to see what it's there for. And so Hebrews 10, 19 is this turning point where the writer is shifting. He's been just, he or she has just been emphasizing, here's, who's Christ, here's who Christ is. Here's what he's done. Here's how he is greater. Here's how he is better. Here's how he is truer. Here's how he is surer. Here's how he is more beautiful and more wonderful than anything you've ever seen. And now right in the past, we're jumping in on that therefore it's the turning point because now he's shifting from reminding them of Christ to now saying in light of all of that here's how we should live okay so that's where we're jumping in this morning let's look at it together Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19 I'm going to read to you 19 to 25 from the ESV translation therefore brothers or sisters Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, speaking of Jesus, let us draw near with true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's happening here is that some Jewish believers were neglecting to meet together for whatever reasons, whether it was arrogance or indifference or busyness. They had the same reasons we have today, but they were not meeting together. They had stopped gathering, and the author of Hebrews wants to address that problem. And in this text, we're going to find three reasons why we gather why they gathered, and why we still gather today. And it's very easy to find these reasons in the text because they all are introduced with the same phrase. It's the invitation of let us, okay? So here's the first reason why we gather. We gather, number one, to draw near to God. Now, at this point, someone might say, oh, hold on, hold on. I don't need to come here to do that. I don't need to be a part of church to do that. I can do that on my own. And I would say yes and no, Yes, of course, you can draw near to God on your own because your way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. But let's look at this text carefully. He says, let us draw near. This is a third person. He's making a call to all of us. And he says, with a true heart, somehow all of us together share this true heart and we share this full assurance of faith with our hearts, not just your heart sprinkled clean, but our hearts and with our bodies washed, not just your body, but our bodies. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us something very significant here. And here's what I think the author is trying to say. Drawing near to God always involves drawing near to his people. You can't separate them. Drawing near to God always involves drawing near to his people. It's like, I've heard this example before, it's like the spokes on a bike wheel, right? As they get closer to the center, they simultaneously get closer to each other, 
You can't do it any other way. And it's the same way. Here's what the author is saying. If if you're going to draw near to God, you also have to draw near to each other. Yes, you can worship God on your own, of course, but gathering, here's what gathering does. Here's how gathering helps us draw near to God. Gathering has a profound, unique way of reorienting our hearts for worship. It really does. Nothing will reorient your heart for worship quite like gathering together and seeing Christ lifted up in community. Here's what happens when we gather together, and it's already happened this morning. Our hearts respond and proclaim the truth that we believe, right? We've sang some of that this morning, the truth that we believe, but let's be honest, we also are proclaiming the truth that sometimes we struggle to believe. Some of you saying some things this morning that if you're honest, you actually struggle to believe it at times. And even if you mentally agree with it, functionally in how you live your life, there's a tension between what you say you believe and how you live. And so when we gather in this room together, we lift our voices and we proclaim the truth that we both believe and struggle to believe. We're also challenged and invited to worship together the one true God. The singing and the hearing of the scriptures both read and taught calls us to repentance. It calls us to turn. When we gather, it's the reminder that the world is not just about me as an individual, but we're part of something bigger, and we're called to return to worshiping God instead of worshiping ourselves, other gods, and idols. Here's how I would summarize it. Worship gatherings are rhythmic celebrations of who God is and what he's done. It's a regular rhythm in your life that you need to be a part of because it helps you draw near to God. And we see in this text that as we draw near, we draw near to each other. Well, as we draw near, we also see that the drawing near to God is done with boldness. Did you hear that in the text? It's with confidence that we draw near to God together. You and I, shoulder to shoulder, we draw near to God in confidence. This is not just a confidence that comes from having numbers, right? It's not just a confidence that there's many of us and now we have confidence. It's a totally different sort of confidence than that. I remember when Lilia was first born, she's, she's nine years old now, so it's been a little while, but when Lilia was first born, uh, nothing you watch prepares you for that moment. I don't care how many movies they make you watch, nothing prepares you for what is about to happen. It's, it just takes your breath away, uh, the miracle of birth. And I'm, I'm in the delivery room, we're up at St. Joe's Hospital in the birthplace, I'm in the delivery room, and, uh, you know, Erin is a champ. She's been in labor for almost a couple of days at this point. And uh, Matt, uh, Lilia, all of a sudden, she's there. And the doctor ahead of time had said, do you want to cut the umbilical cord when it's time? And I said, sure. If I'm conscious, I will cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> and, uh, but what I wasn't prepared for was when Lilia's shoulders and arms are out, the doctor then said, hey, Dad, do you want to help? So I actually, I mean, at that point, I thought, I I just got to act, right? What kind of an option do I have now? And so I went and, and I helped and, and, and Lily comes out. But the first thing I noticed about Lily that nobody told me to expect, and I try to warn everybody about this now when they have their first baby so they don't go through what I went through. She was blue. I mean, now not all of our babies are that way, but Lily was for whatever reason. She comes out and she's blue. And I'm like looking at her like, and my heart sinks. I'm thinking, this isn't Right. No one told me this could happen. But you know what I did instead of like screaming and, and freaking out in that moment? I looked at all the other professionals in the room and I looked at their faces because what was I looking for? Are they worried? Are they nervous? Are they concerned? Because if they're not, I'm okay. 
So I'm just looking around going, is everybody cool with this? Is everybody, is everybody, okay? Is everybody okay with this? And there's something that when we come together, the confidence that I have is when I see the confidence that you have in Christ. Sometimes I don't have a lot of confidence because of what I'm going through. But when I see your confidence, your faith in Christ, it helps me draw near. Sometimes you might walk in here on a Sunday morning and you're just looking around the room going, does everybody still believe this is true? Because I don't, I had a really bad week. And you're not going to get that outside of the gathering of the family of God. And so we come together with this boldness and with this tremendous confidence. But also as we draw near, it's, you know, part of the boldness is that we draw near to God in a new and living way, a new and living way. In the Old Testament, the high priest entered into the presence of God one at a time and only once a year. But in the New Testament, we get to enter together every time we gather we come in together, not just once a year, not just one person. Drawing near to God is done in a new and living way. It said in the text that, uh, that it's done by the tearing of the curtain. This is the symbolic curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, by the tearing, the tearing of Jesus' flesh. So it's Jesus' body that's broken and torn so that the veil that separated us from the Father could also be torn. And that's the new and living way in that we have. Hearts are being made clean and bodies are being washed because of the blood of Jesus, because of Jesus' work. So our confidence is in knowing that what Jesus has done has split the veil in the temple so that we can now enter in. And so we draw near and we draw near together. So the first reason we gather is to draw near to God. The second reason that we see in this text that we should draw, that we should gather together is simply this, to hold fast the gospel. To hold fast, to hold onto, to get a good grip and not let go of the gospel. The writer says it this way, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You know what I love about that? Even your faithfulness is based on his faithfulness. Your ability to hold firm and not waver is not because of necessarily your great faithfulness, but it's because he who promised is faithful. You and I will not keep all our promises, but not a single promise that God speaks will not be kept. He who promised is faithful. And so we hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the Greek word here for hope is really speaking of the future hope. It's the future tense of the gospel. It's that someday we will be saved, not just from the penalty of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, past tense. We are being saved from the power of sin, present tense. But someday, this is what the word means here, hope. We will be saved, future tense, from the very presence of sin. So hold fast. The sin that binds you up, the sin that slows you down, the sin that entangles you, the sin that makes you feel insecure and inadequate and unable to follow Christ, that sin someday, it'll be a distant memory. In fact, you won't even remember it anymore because there is a day coming. We can hold fast to that hope of the gospel. We gather together regularly on Sundays so that we can be reminded, so that we can celebrate, so that we can rehearse the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done. The gospel is the one non-negotiable that we have as a church. Anything else can change. The carpet can change. The chairs have changed. The amount of songs that we sing can change. When we get, all of that stuff can change. It can all change because none of it's sacred. The one thing that is sacred and cannot change is holding fast to the gospel. It's the gospel that makes us the people of God. Remember what Paul wrote? What is the power of God to save? It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God 
to save. It's power to those who are being saved, but it's foolish to those who are perishing. And so when we say that the church is the people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God, what we're saying is we're the people of God and we've been saved by the good news of the gospel for God's mission and purpose. Gathering together regularly shapes the culture of our church. We need a common language. We need common stories, common theology, common practices, common mission. We need to be a part of that. Brad Watson writes this, our worship gatherings press pause on our hurried lives. Anybody else have a hurried life sometimes? And our worship gatherings press pause and remind us clearly of who God is, what he has done, and who we are. Everything we do when we gather reminds us of the gospel, who we are because of the gospel and our role in God's mission. We proclaim the gospel in song. We hear the gospel in preaching. We pray for gospel understanding and repentance, and we touch and taste the image of the gospel when we take communion. The elements of a worship gathering remind us of the gospel. And you know why we need this regular holding fast together to the gospel? There's two reasons why we need it. Reason number one is this, because you and I are always preaching some type of gospel to ourselves. We're always telling ourselves some type of good news to get us through our day. You know the famous song from the musical Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow, right? There's some version of that song resonating in the heart of every human being when they're going through something difficult. They're telling themselves, the sun will come out tomorrow, it's gonna get better. And whatever you're telling yourself, that's the good news that you believe, that's the good news that your heart is resting in, that's the good news that your heart is receiving and rejoicing in, that's your gospel. So we're always telling our hearts, preaching to our hearts, some sort of gospel. But here's the other reason why we need these regular reminders. Because not only are we always doing it, but secondly, we are habitual gospel forgetters. We forget the true gospel, and we begin preaching to our hearts counterfeit gospels. And sometimes they sound a lot like the gospel, so we actually think it's true. And sometimes it actually sounds very religious or moral, and so we think it's what God wants us to fill our hearts with, but it's not. And when we don't gather around God's story regularly, we forget God's story, we forget what he's done, we forget what he's doing, and we forget what he will do. And we begin to drift into thinking that we're all alone and God doesn't care. And we begin preaching to our own hearts counterfeit gospels like this. Let me, let me give you four examples of counterfeit gospels that people preach to their hearts. Number one, God saves good people. It's a counterfeit gospel. That God saves good people. The gospel is not about God making good, bad people good. The gospel is God making dead people alive. You know, there are very good people who don't believe the gospel. And sometimes that's actually an objection to faith, isn't it? Oh, I know people who aren't Christians who are great people. Well, so do I. But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't about making you good. The gospel is about bringing you to life. That's two very different things. And so some people, you begin to teach and preach to your heart, the gospel saves good people, or God saves good people. And if I'm just good, God will save me. And so you begin to hope in your own goodness. It's called works righteousness. Another counterfeit gospel is this. I've actually heard people say that they think this is a scripture. This is not a scripture. Please never say this is a scripture. God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who don't have any other hope. That's the scriptures. God helps those who have no help and have no chance of help. Not God helps those who help themselves. Now, should we do the best that we can to help ourselves? Of course, of course we should. But that's not the gospel. And sometimes we preach that to our hearts. Well, I'm gonna do my part and then I know God will do his part. That's a false gospel. God helps us because we're helpless, 
not because we're so impressive with how we've helped ourselves. Here's another counterfeit gospel we preach to ourselves. God exists for my personal happiness. God exists for my personal happiness, for my wealth, for my health. And we begin to preach these things to ourselves. And then when we lose any of those things, our faith goes off the rails. And then here's, here's the last one. Sometimes a counterfeit gospel that we preach to ourselves is that, that Jesus plus something is what we really need. When really it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we need to hold fast the confession, hold fast the gospel. What do we do when we gather on Sundays to hold fast the gospel? A couple things that we do. Number one, we sing together. Singing together is formative. Singing together is powerful. Singing is only one form of worship, okay? Everything you do is worship. So singing is just one expression of worship, but it's a powerful one because it's so formative and it's so memorable. And so together we sing. And that's why as the song leaders in this church, we give careful thought to the lyrics. We don't pick songs because we like the music or the melody or the rhythm, although those should all be good. We, We sing songs because they help us remember the gospel. And sometimes there actually are songs out there being written four churches and sung on popular radio stations that actually contain more counterfeit gospel than real gospel. And we need to be discerning about what we sing because what we sing shapes our belief and shapes our hearts. Most of you will not leave here quoting me, but some of you will leave here singing the songs that we sang this morning. Songs are more powerful in that way. And so when we sing together, we remind ourselves of the gospel. We sing the scriptures. And there's also something very powerful, I think, about hearing each other sing. I love hearing the whole room singing together. There's something very powerful about that. Another way that we hold fast the gospel when we gather is the preaching. The preaching in this church should always point to Jesus. Preaching in a gospel-centered church is not a bunch of how-to messages on how to improve your life and how to be a better version of yourself. That's not true gospel message. True gospel message always lifts up Christ's work on our behalf, who he is and what he's done, his supremacy over all things, his sufficiency in all things. And so we preach the gospel. Another way that we hold fast the gospel when we gather is that we clarify doctrine in our teaching, whether it's on Sunday mornings, Sunday night, Sunday school, Wednesday night, Bible study, those are times where we are clarifying and teaching doctrine because, you know, there's a lot of bad doctrine out there, a lot of bad doctrine. It's very hard to know whether you're hearing good doctrine or bad doctrine. But 25 years ago, I always joke about this, it was easier to be a preacher in a church 25 years ago because 25 years ago, nobody knew if you were a good preacher or not because you were the only voice they ever heard. It was like, but nowadays... You go home, some of you on your way home will listen to somebody else preach. I mean, you can listen to anybody in the world preach because of the internet, because of podcasts, because of websites like SoundCloud. And so now I think for preachers, the job's gotten harder because now you're not just being compared to the preacher down the street, you're being compared to the best preachers in the world who everybody can go home and watch and listen. And there are some, I listen to a lot of preaching and if you want recommendations, I can give you some, but there's a lot of preaching on TV now, isn't there? And some of them are very good, but can I just be honest with you without saying any names? Some of them are not very good. And some of them are literally fleecing the flock, taking their money and their resources to build their own kingdom. And so the regular gathering in the local church, it reorients our mind and our hearts in such a way that it clarifies doctrine. And, and some of you, I won't say names, but, but some of you, even last night, one of you sent me an email a question about doctrine. You were reading a scripture and you didn't understand what it said. And so I shot back an email. There's lots of ways you can't do that on your own. 
We need each other. So we hold fast the gospel. And then the other way we hold fast the gospel when we gather are the visible representations like the water baptism service, which we're going to have in two weeks. It's a visible, visual reminder and representation of the gospel, alive in our, or in our sin, dead to Christ, alive in Christ. But also the monthly taking together of communion, this experiential uh, experiencing the gospel together. Okay, so we gather together to draw near to God. Secondly, to hold fast the gospel. And last point this morning, we gather together to fight for each other. To fight for each other. Not fight each other. (laughs) That three-letter word is very important. To fight for each other. Now, why do I say that? In this text, this author says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Here's the thing with that that word stir. It's used two other times in the New Testament, and it's always a negative connotation. It's always argumentative. In fact, that, that Greek word for stir is used in Acts 15, 29 to describe a very sharp argument between two church leaders. And then it's used later in 1 Corinthians, the the love chapter, to describe something that love does not do. So what is the author saying here? I'm sure when the Jewish believers read this in their own language, in the Greek, they were like, let us consider how to fight each other to good, how to argue one another to love. And What in the world? What does this mean? Well, a few things. It means this, that stirring one another to love and good works is not always easy. It's not always comfortable, and it's never passive. It doesn't happen on accident. This is, a, this is an aggressive thing. This is a fighting for each other. It also means in this text that we have to work out together. How do we do this? Did you notice that it said, let us consider how to fight for each other? So we don't just come together to fight for each other. We come together to put our heads and our hearts together and say, how can we best fight for each other? How can we fight for this individual who's struggling in this situation? How can we fight together for these families and churches impacted in Texas and in Florida by these hurricanes? We consider this. This also means when it says that we should stir up one another, that we should fight for each other, this word clearly indicates that this sort of stirring cannot be done from a distance. You have to draw near. It's intensely personal. And also, I think the author uses this word because learning how to motivate and provoke each other to love and good works is difficult because as a church, we lack the natural commonalities that mark every other community. We have a supernatural commonality. It's Jesus and his mission. And that's the only reason we gather together in this room this morning. Not because, you know, all of you have something in common together. Most of you, if we were to sit here and actually find things out about each other, we'd realize, I don't. I don't believe that. I don't think that. I don't act that way. I don't do that because there's things we don't have in common. I don't root for that team. I don't vote that way. Whatever it is, right? But we have this commonality that supersedes any natural commonality, which is Jesus and his mission. And some people today in our, in our world, there's a lot of young believers especially who say, I don't need to go to a church because I have meaningful relationship with other Christians. And so I still am gathering with them. And I still have that sort of community of the church together because they'll push back very hard. The church is not a building. The church is not a location. The church is a people. The church is not somewhere you necessarily go. The church is someone that you, something that you are. And I would generally agree with that. And next week, we're going to talk a lot about that because next week, we're going to talk about being the church that doesn't just gather, but the church that scatters. 
Okay? But for this purpose this morning, you need to hear this. If you handpick your faith community, that's not a church. This is what people like to do. They want to pick people to be a part of their faith community who look like them, act like them, are in the same stage of life as them, believe everything they believe, do all the same things they do. You know what I would say to those people who are doing that? You have a club. You don't have a church. That's a club. That's not a church. Because if you're not part of a body where there are marked differences between you and everyone else in this room, except for your love for Jesus and his mission, then you're not part of a church. However, this is what makes being the church that gathers difficult because we're trying to provoke and stir one another up to good works and to love each other. What this means is fighting for each other. Now, this is important because the gathered church points to our unity because when we gather together, you get to see the local church in one place. Gathering together, it not only demonstrates, listen to this, it not only demonstrates our unity, but it nurtures our unity right? It's not just a demonstration of our unity, but it nurtures our unity. It's in these gatherings that we submit to one another, and we see our collective belief in the gospel. In other words, when we gather together, we reminded we're not going at it alone. We're fighting for each other. We're giving witness to the world, and we get to combine our ideas and our thoughts and our resources to better serve the community. Okay, so as I close, how do we fight for each other when we gather? A couple ways. Number one, we pray for one another, right? We pray together. That's one of the best things you can do to fight for the people in your churches. When you hear something's going on in their life, don't talk about it. Don't call someone about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. The other way that we fight for each other is we consider God's truth together in, in environments where we can actually talk about it, right? That's why we have classes. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why churches have small groups. That's why your interactions with people in the church before and after service are so significant, because in those moments, you're fighting for each other. Sometimes just asking somebody a hard question, and by hard question, I just mean, how are you really doing? Sometimes that's fighting for them because you're trying to stir them up into a moment of loving relationship and loving honesty. We, stir, we fight for each other by encouraging each other and edifying each other and the releasing of the gifts, as you heard this morning. And let me give you a real practical one. You know that for many of you, you're sitting here this morning unhindered by your children because somebody's fighting for you. They're in the nursery right now. They're in kids' church right now. And their service to your children is an act of fighting for you. If your kids are with you here this morning, many of you would have a more difficult time listening to everything I'm saying. Now, of course, the children are also receiving their own age and stage specific ministry. But there's something powerful. The people who are running the sound and who are running the slides, you know, they're not just pushing buttons back there. They're fighting for you. They're doing their part so that you can hear the word, that you can sing the songs, that you can experience and hold fast together the gospel. And so let me uh, just encourage you to, to, to be grateful for those people. And another way that we fight for each other is that we pool our resources and we give together. We, when we gather, we give together. And that giving meets needs. It meets the needs to have a church it meets the needs to have leaders in a church. It meets practical needs. Some of you at times will walk through seasons where you need needs, and sometimes the church is able to help, and it meets needs around the world. Let me encourage you to be regular with your attendance, but also regular with your giving. And some people have the mentality, if I didn't show up to church, I don't have to give that week. It's like, well, then you're just going to church. You're not being the church. Because if you are being the church, then the support that is offered is whether you show up or not, you're still part of the church. 
We're called to be the church that gathers. The church, Christ doesn't save us to be lone rangers or isolated believers. He saves us to be a part of his people. Now, the last thought I want to say is this. Some people would say, yeah, but this passage in Hebrews, it's actually the only one in the entire New Testament that explicitly teaches us to gather. And it's true. This passage in Hebrews is the only one in the entirety of the New Testament that explicitly teaches the church to gather. Well, you know why? A couple of reasons. One, because the early church had no frame of reference for a non-gathering church. They didn't need to tell them to gather because there was no framework in their mindset for what's called now an unchurched Christian. They wouldn't have even understood that. That's an oxymoron in the, in the, to the early church. So these sort of reminders didn't need to be written. And they didn't just gather once a week or once in a while. According to Acts 2, they shared meals together and they gathered regularly. They were a church that gathered and we should be too. Practical application for us this morning. Some of you, uh, you're part of the church. You're here on Sundays. You're, you're getting what you need out of it. But it's the wrong mentality. This is not an individualistic opportunity for you to get what you need out of it. We shouldn't come as consumers. We should come as contributors. And some of you are coming in on a regular basis and you're getting a lot out of it, but you're not fighting for other people in here. And some of the ways that we can fight for people is is to serve in different ways. There's needs in this church. We, we need people to serve in different capacities. And if you're a part of the church and you're not serving in some capacity, I would love to challenge you and say, your serving is not just, I'm going to sign up and do something and get some sense of guilt off my chest so I'm a part of something. Your serving is actually part of being the church. You're fighting for other people when you serve. Another practical application is in two weeks, we're going to take in some new church members. If this is a church that you attend regularly and you're not a member, we want to invite you to become a member. It's the, really the highest level of practical commitment that you can make to a local church. It's a very powerful, biblical thing to do. And if you have any questions about how you do that and what it means, please let us know. By the way, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we own you. It doesn't mean that we know your finances. It doesn't mean that somebody's checking in on your giving and your tithing. No one's ever done that here. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that together we're the church in the most intensely, practically committed way we can be. So if you're not a member, sign up. If you're not baptized in water, please, and you believe in Christ, please do so. Because when you get baptized in water in two Sundays, you know what it does for all of us? It helps us hold fast the gospel. It reminds us of the gospel. And then the last application is this. This fall, September, October, November, into December, this fall, in the light of what God's saying to us in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, would you commit to attending regularly? In a, maybe in a way that you've never done before. 30 years ago, the average church attender came to church three times a week. Today, the average attender comes three times a month. It's changed a lot. 30 years ago, I'm not saying we have to go back to 30 years ago necessarily. What I'm saying is you need to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and say, in what way am I allowing the gathering to interrupt my agenda? You know, in what way am I coming together with his people so that it will shape me? So that we can draw near to God, so that we can hold fast the gospel, and so that we can fight for each other. Let's pray together this morning.